take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 79. It's hard to know the exact historical context of this psalm, uh, but it, it seems as if this is uh, when Jerusalem has been destroyed by invading armies or some sort of destruction of Jerusalem is taking place, including that of the temple. And we see the psalmist's prayer to the Lord in the midst of this crisis. And as we, we start to go through this psalm, one of the things that we start to encounter is the motivations that emerge for his prayers. You see an imprecatory psalm here. The imprecatory psalm is for calling for the destruction of one's enemies. And we see how the motivation for that actually emerges that might correct uh, some misunderstandings on imprecatory psalms and how that applies in the Christian life today. Let us hear the word of God. Psalm 79. O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food, the flesh of your faithful to the beast of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. We have become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. How long, O Lord? Will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. Do not remember against us our former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God, of our salvation for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. Why should the nations say, Where is their God? Let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. Let the groans of the prisoners come before you. According to your great power, preserve those doomed to die. Return sevenfold into the lap of our neighbors, the taunts with which they have taunted you, O Lord. But we, your people... The sheep of your pasture will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. This is God's word, and may he bless the reading of it. You see this come in three different sections. You first see their condition or their circumstances in verses 1 through 4. Verses 5 through 9, you see their confession. And then verses 10 through 13, you see their conclusion. So we see their condition, their confession, and their conclusion. And we begin by looking at their condition or their circumstances, and we see the nature of it. You see physical violence in verse 2. In verse 1, you see destruction of the religious temple or desecration of the temple. The religious center itself has been attacked. attacked. You see in verse 4, public embarrassment. Verse 11, you see prisoners. Verse 10, again, you see the physical violence of outpouring blood. And so this was a desperate situation. 
This is talking about a physical attack that was taking place on Jerusalem that had uh, prevented them to be able to worship. It had prevented their, their normal way of life. And this is possibly before many of them are going to go into exile. But just consider as we think of verses 1 through 4, what's really being said. O oh God, the nations have come into your inheritance. This is what you have given your people. You have promised this to your people, people that you have chosen, that you have picked out of all the nations, not because they were greater or better, but because you have set your love upon them. You have given this land to them. You have given them a temple. You designed the temple. You have chosen Jerusalem to be the place by which you will be worshipped. This was all speaking of the holiness of God that he has set apart for the purpose of his being worshipped. And what do we see here? The place of holiness, the land of holiness, the temple which was a place of God's presence of holiness that was set apart for God's holiness is now defiled by godless pagans that have come in and desecrated the temple, desecrated the land, and desecrated God's people. That's the situation. Not only are they no longer able to worship, worship has been rendered utterly pointless according to their ceremonial system. Verse 2, They have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food, the flesh of your faithful to the beast of the earth. Verse 3, They have poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there is no one to bury them. Again, you consider the whole idea of holiness and sacred space and this place that's set apart. Verses 2 and 3 now describe un uncleanliness. Ceremonial uncleanliness is what we see here. The devastation is so great that there's no one to bury the bodies, but they're now just rotting, and they're being eaten by unclean animals. So you see that death is ceremonial uncleanliness. And the picture is that the Jerusalem itself is unclean. And so that which is supposed to be holy, that which is supposed to be God, that is supposed to be set apart for the worship of God, now is defiled by pagans. It has been desecrated by pagans. But now it's been made unclean by dead bodies being eaten by unclean animals. I don't think that we can quite grasp the significance of what's taking place in Jerusalem. This is the worst possible situation that they could have encountered. And it gets worse in verse 4. We have become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. And so those neighboring nations, those neighboring peoples, we could just see that, well, they're mocking God's people because of their situation, but it actually they're mocking them because they've been defeated, and the other nations now stand in triumph over Israel. They stand in triumph over Jerusalem. The great religious center of the Jews has now been destroyed, and so they're able to mock them, they're able to gloat over them, they're, they're triumphing over the people of God, which means this. In essence, their gods have conquered Yahweh. That's the desperation of the situation. You think of throughout 
uh, the, the, the Old Testament, how you will see God face the gods of the pagan nations. He faces the gods of the Egyptians and destroys them. He faces the gods of the Philistines and destroys them. He faces the gods of the neighboring Syrians and he destroys them. But now there comes a place where God's sacred land, God's sacred city, God's sacred temple, God's sacred people are desecrated. And they're mocked for it. They're defeated to the point that the neighbors feel so comfortable around them that they can mock them and they can taunt them. We have defeated you. We have defeated you. You have lost. Your God is nothing. That's the condition they're in. So how do they respond? Verse 5, how long O oh Lord, will you be angry forever? When you, when you know the words how long and then forever and you put them together, it indicates this was a, an extended period of time. So this was not just a, a momentary battle that they lost, but this is an ongoing siege that's taking place. And I, I want you to notice the first thing about this, though, is that the psalmist cries out to God. We've seen how horrible things are. We see that the pain and suffering that the psalmist is facing and, and Israel is facing itself, but they still nonetheless cry out to God. Asaph is crying out to God. And what is the significance of this? That he cries out to God when he's been destroyed and people are saying, where's your God? He still believes God is his sovereign God. He still believes that God is faithful. He still believes that God is steadfast in his love. And rather than turn his back upon God, he turns his eyes upon the Lord and asks and pleads, Lord, how long? And the fact that he's saying how long indicates trust that God is good to fulfill his promises, that God will indeed come through and rescue his people that he has set apart, his land that was set apart, his temple that was set apart, that God indeed will come and fulfill his promises to his people. And so that's the first thing that we have to note, is that even this is a cry of desperation, of crying out, Lord, how long are you going to be angry with us forever? It's still an act of trust upon the psalmist's part to come to the Lord. When you find yourself in a situation of desperation that's ongoing and ongoing and ongoing, and, and many times, uh, you know, talking to people and they say, it seems like I've been in this cycle for two years. I've been in this cycle for years where I just can't get out of it and I can't just seem to catch a break. I, I think that we have to look to what God's Word says. We're not the only ones that have faced that cycle where we don't seem like we're able to catch a break, but they've experienced utter destruction. They're not just having a couple of bad years with their work and relationships and stuff, but they have lost everything. They still trust that God is good in His promises. And notice this, though, they, they, they admit, that the psalmist admits that God is angry. Will you be angry forever? There's an admission of their guilt. There's an admission that they, they had sinned, and this is actually what they deserve. 
There's another place in the Psalms where, where there's a confession before the Lord regarding his anger, but it's, it's different because they, they acknowledged that God was angry, but that they hadn't done anything wrong. In Psalm 44, verse 17, all this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way, yet you have broken us in the place of jackals. The psalmist there is saying, we don't understand why this is happening, but yet you're, you're God, yet you're sovereign. Here it's totally different. The psalmist is saying, you're angry at us, and this is an admission of their guilt. It's an admission that they were, they were deserving of God's just anger. There's no accusation against God that this was unrighteous or unjust on God's part, but rather, God was rightfully angry. And so look at the, the, what, what the result of God's anger that we have seen. There has been destruction, there has been death, and there has been desecration. There has been defilement. All of these things have come about, and the psalmist says, Lord, you are angry. In other words, the psalmist is saying, Lord, you brought your hand upon us through death, destruction, defilement, desecration. Think of what Isaiah says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being, I create calamities. I am the Lord who does all these things. And so when the psalmist says, Lord, that you are angry, how long will you be angry? It is an admission of their guilt and that they are worthy of what God is bringing upon them. There's another thing about this. No enemy of Israel would succeed against God's people, against God's land, unless God's hand had brought it upon them. So even in their acknowledgement of God's anger, they have to acknowledge that the enemy whom they hate, and they're going to pray for their destruction, he's having to admit, God, you, you are the one who actually raised up this enemy to tear us down. Think about that for a second. You think about how we understand God's sovereignty over rulers and over nations. God gives wicked people wicked rulers over them. Wickedness breeds wickedness. And there are wicked people surrounding us today as there was then, wicked tyrants. People that legislate the killing of babies. People that legislate perversity and celebrate it. God installed them in the power. And yes, they'll be responsible before God, for their actions, nonetheless, God sovereignly has put everyone in power that is in power. Maybe we should, as we look at, and we're not a Christian nation, we, we don't have, a, we don't have a, 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 someone over the top of us. We're not constituted like Israel was. But perhaps maybe we should think about 
what God's judgment on a people looks like. What God's wrath and anger looks like upon a people that have abandoned his word. Because I think it looks kind of like what we see. Because that's what we see here. is a people that had abandoned God's word and abandoned God and now his wrath is upon them. And unless Israel would turn in repentance, God's angry hand would remain upon them. This is her prayer, though, turns from this admission of guilt to verse 6 to the imprecatory part of the psalm, pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name, for they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. So Asaph is calling for God to act justly. And he specifies why this is justice is because verse 7, for they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his hand. So you see two things. God uses nations to punish Israel. But then those that punished God's people, God then punishes them. In other words, those that are attacking Jerusalem those that have desecrated the temple, they are responsible for the sinfulness of their actions. They're responsible for taking life. They're responsible for all of those things. But yes, God at the same time sovereignly had raised them up to come against Jerusalem. And so this is a prayer for justice. And, And we have to recognize he's not calling for a general destruction of nations that reject God. Because in verse 6, it says, Pour out your anger on the nations, plural, that do not know you, and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name. Then it's qualified what he's referring to. Is this speaking about all nations that reject Yahweh? No, it's for they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. It's directed towards those that attacked Jerusalem. It's not speaking of all nations without qualification, but those nations that specifically had warred against Israel. It's why the prayer isn't for their conversion. Because that's what we would think that you should be praying for, is for the conversion of these people. Isn't that why the temple was put in? To be a light to the Gentiles as Solomon prayed? That they would flock to it? And say, tell us about your God. But this is speaking of those that had attacked them. And and this brings to the question, how do we understand these imprecatory psalms? And every time we come to a psalm of uh, imprecation, we, we have to ask this question. There's another thing that we have to consider here. Their worship has been destroyed. Their public worship of God has been destroyed. Their ability to do what God had commanded them to do has been taken away from them. Not only by being ceremonially unclean, but by the destruction. If the the temple was destroyed in this, we don't know. But the nations that had come and attacked them had prevented them from the ability to worship. Does that give us an idea of the nature of this imprecatory psalm? 
Not only had they faced the death and destruction and all the deeds that I threw out earlier, but now they're also, we see, they're not able to worship as God has commanded them to worship. That's when the prayer emerges for God to take action against these nations. That actually God would pour out his anger on them. That he would destroy them. Why? Because they destroyed God's people, they destroyed God's temple, and they cannot worship God. After this, he moves into a confession. Do not remember against us our former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. Now, the ESV says, do not remember against us our former iniquities. Other translations say the iniquities of former generations. Most say that the iniquities of our fathers. That's what most other translations say. But this is another acknowledgement that God's wrath is just. They sin, and so they deserved God's wrath. This would just simply be justice, that God was angry with them. So when he says, ask, do not remember their sins, what does he mean by remember our sins no more? It's specifically in the text, do not remember against us. And so bring these to account. It's to no longer hold our sins against us. And he says, let your compassion, that, that word compassion comes from the word from which we get the word womb. Be merciful with a motherly love. That's what the prayer is. Show mercy to us as a, a, as a, as a mother with a womb would show. He does not ask this because, I want you to notice, this is crucial for how we understand our relation with God. He does not ask this because there is something worthy in themselves. But rather, he asks this because God is gracious. He throws this upon God. Will you no longer do this because let your compassion come to us? Will, in other words, will you show us grace? There's, there's nothing in the psalmist, there's nothing in them that they bring to the table, but they, they throw themselves purely at the mercy of God. Now, why would they pray about their father's sins? Where we read, do not remember against us the iniquities of our fathers. And I, I think that that probably is the right translation. Why would they say that? Well, Exodus 20, verse 5 says, You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. And so this worshiping of, of false gods would be something that God says would come upon the children. How do we understand that? In Ezekiel 18, Israel was making that very argument when they were in exile. We're in exile because of our fathers and because of the sins of our fathers. 
And this is what the prophet says, or the Lord says through the prophet. What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. So, so that proverb just simply means this, our fathers sinned, and because they sinned, now we're experiencing God's wrath because of it. goes on to say, as I live, declares the Lord God, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son. The soul who sins shall die. In other words, you're responsible for your sins. Your fathers are responsible for their sins. Yeah, we're all responsible before one another. The father's responsible for the sin environment that they place their children in, and the children are responsible for how they respond to that environment. At the end of the day, they're all responsible. It goes in Ezekiel 18, Yet you say, why should not the son suffer for the iniquity of the father when the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to observe all my statutes? He shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Unless they pray, don't hold us accountable for what was done in the past. Don't hold us accountable for our sins. Do not remember this upon us, but actually be compassionate to your people. And he goes on to say, after this confession, and the progression is, is this confession to this request, help us. Start off with, how long, O Lord? And as the psalmist moves through this prayer, he comes to this point of help us, pleading with the Lord. Help us, O God, of our salvation. And, and note that there's still this recognition of God's salvation to his people that have been utterly wiped out and destroyed. For the glory of your name delivers us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. Notice the recognition of God's sovereignty throughout this whole thing is actually, at this point, it shows a heart that is truly changed and a repentant heart. They plead nothing of their own merit, but it's, the request is purely related to God being glorified for being merciful to people that don't deserve mercy. This is for your glory, for your namesake. Save us because you set this part, you set this land apart, you set these people apart, you set this temple apart. This has your name on it. Save us for your name. It's almost as he says, well, don't worry about us, forget about us, but for your sake, for your glory, act. Do this and be motivated by your own name. So what's the conclusion? In verse 10, Why should the nations say, Where is their God? Let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be among the nations before our eyes. Now, I want you to, to connect this here. The connection is 
of this, the nations is not so much of this prayer for them to be destroyed. It's not so much connected with their lack of belief. It actually is connected to their treatment of Israel and their mocking of God. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Which is mocking God. What did he previously ask? May you save us for your name's sake. And then he goes on to say in verse 10, so that you're not mocked. And so they, 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 they're, they're, they're running through God's sovereignty through all of this, and this is leading them back to God and for God's glory. And so it's almost as if they have said this, we have sinned, we have deserved this, but you, God, have set your promises upon us. And because you have set your promises upon us, these nations are mocking. So will, will you... Will you work our salvation so that you're not mocked? Calvin says this. From this we are taught that we do not pray in a right manner unless concern about our own salvation and zeal for the glory of God are inseparably joined together in our exercise. That's a profound thought. Let me read it again. Calvin says, from this we are taught that we do not pray in a right manner unless concern about our own salvation and zeal for the glory of God are inseparably joined together in our exercise. He's speaking about why we pray for the things that we pray for. Do, is, it, is it about us? And you must, well, I want to be saved. Yes, amen, you want to be saved do you want to be saved as a testimony to God's grace and glory and his electing love that's inexplicable? That seems to be a heart that's truly encountered a sovereign God. Where it's not just escapism. I escaped hell by saying a prayer or something, but this is truly about a merciful God that shows grace to people that don't deserve it. He goes on to say in this conclusion, let the groans of the prisoners come before you. So this is speaking of the people that are in prison. And it, and it takes you really back to uh, Israel being in uh, Egypt when the groans of the people came up to the Lord and he heard their groans, he heard their cries. It goes back to the book of Judges when the people are entrapped and enslaved and, and God hears their cries, he hears their pleas. And th this is exactly what he's asking for. Let those that have been in prison, that have been captured, let, them, let their prayers come up before you. According to your great power, preserve those doomed to die. In other words, that's showing you how helpless it looked for them. They, they, it looks like they're going to die and... He says, may you preserve them in this what seems like an impossible situation. And, and again, it's almost the picture of, of Egypt. And from their perspective, the oppression was so bad, it seemed as if it was a foregone conclusion that they will face death. It was so desperate that they didn't seem like they had any other hope. It was so desperate that many of them, as they're crying out to God, probably thought, is God even hearing my prayers? Have you ever thought that? 
Does God hear what I pray for? You pray for something over and over and over again. What is our tendency is to get impatient. But what do we learn from the scriptures? Our prayers do go up before God and he does hear our prayers. But we also see from the scriptures that sometimes in the process of that prayer transformation that's taking place, there's death. There's defilement, there's destruction, there's desecration, there's all of these things that are taking place forming us in the process. But do our cries reach the Lord? Absolutely they do. Even when it seems like he's not listening and things are incredibly desperate. So he goes on to say, Return sevenfold into the lap of our neighbors, the taunts with which they have taunted you, O Lord. I think this is such a comforting verse because if you put verse 12 with verse 4, let me recount verse 4, we have become the taunt of our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. In other words, our neighbors are taunting us. In verse 12, it's they're taunting you actually, Lord. Why is that comforting? Well, because when God's people are mocked, the Lord takes it personally. When, when God's people, when his church is mocked and made fun of, God's not ignoring that. God's not blind to that. But actually, he rather knows that it's taking place. And we should take comfort in this, that the Lord will bring justice on behalf of his people. I was just listening to uh, Dr. Jim Renahan uh, talk um, on justice, and, and he said, he made this interesting point. He said, oftentimes a criminal will do an egregious crime, and before they're able to go to sentencing and justice to be done, they take their life, and people say, he didn't actually experience justice, but Dr. Renahan says, oh no, he did. A most complete, perfect justice was experienced. We might not see an earthly justice, and, and many of these Israelites did not experience an earthly justice, but there's no one that escapes justice. And we can take great comfort in that. God takes very seriously those that would mock his people. He takes it as if you're mocking him. Despite the fact that no relief had come, notice what they say in verse 13. And let every word hit you, but we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, We'll give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. That's not quite the ending you would expect in this, is it? But notice what it says. We're, we are your people. We are the sheep of your pasture. They were, they were not outside of God's saving grace. They were not outside of God's sovereign plan. They were God's sheep, and God is the shepherd. And they were being disciplined to bring them to repentance. They were, they, they were being broken down so that they would learn to obey. 
You know, we are the sheep. And we have one shepherd. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are times, as we see in Scripture, that our legs need to be broken so we quit wandering off. They recognize that they are God's people and that God is their shepherd. This is an acknowledgement of God's provision over them. This is an acknowledgement that God cares for them. This is an acknowledgement that God is over them still. It's, the, it's as if they never lose hope and trust in God. They never lose that, that, that hope that God will rescue them and that God is there for them, even though things were as bad as they could be. They also praise God when they're disciplined. This is always the result of God's people, is to give thanks forever, even under the disciplining hand of God. So consider this for a moment. When we are under that disciplining hand of God, He deserves praise for it. He deserves thanks for it. He deserves our gratitude for how He may afflict us. There's a lot of things we could think from or consider from this psalm. Let me just give you a few. When we go to the Lord in prayer, what motivates our desires? Is it ultimately God's glory or our own pressing concerns? Is it God's glory or our pressing concerns? Calvin says our concerns need to be inseparably linked with our desire for God's glory. Let me ask you it this way. Have you ever been sinned against? Has someone ever sinned against you? Of course someone sinned against you. We've all been sinned against. When sinned against, are we more upset that we have been sinned against or that sin has been committed against a holy God? I think that that gets to where we, our zeal really lies. Because we say we do things for God's glory and we're to do all things for God's glory. But when it comes down to it, if someone sins against me, Am I more distraught over how it's impacted me, or am I more distraught that someone has sinned, which is sin against a holy God? You see how that changes how we think and reframes how we think about things? Are we upset because we were offended, or are we upset because God was sinned against? That's the question. Another way to think of this is when the bride of Christ is afflicted by the world, the flesh, and Satan. Do we show more concern for how we are afflicted over what may be said? Or is it that we're more concerned when the wicked say, where's your God? What concerns our heart when the bride of Christ is afflicted? And finally, we have to just note this for our own comfort and assurance Never once does the psalmist say they deserve God's mercy. 
Never once does the psalmist here say that they deserve God's salvation. They throw themselves at the feet of God's compassion, God's mercy, God's grace. They they contribute nothing to the deliverance they're asking God for. And that's our great hope, is that we contribute nothing to what our deliverance is from sin. If we had to contribute anything, then Christ is not sufficient. And we could never be sure of our salvation. But rather, we can say we have assurance of faith because of Christ and his shed blood. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It is perfect in all its parts and all of its words. Father, we are convicted of this psalm that teaches us about a zeal for your glory rather than a zeal of our own preservation. Father, may we take these lessons to heart, be transformed by them, and may our greatest desire be your glory. May we meditate upon this. Uh, When we go to you in prayer, may, may this be the affliction of our hearts, is that you're glorified in all things. Father, help us by your grace to turn our hearts towards seeking your glory and beholding your glory always. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.